Hello and welcome to the Virtue Podcast. Today I want to talk to you about the menopause and I'm going to specifically focus on the importance of strength training and in preparation of the menopause. We are going to unpack obviously what it is, the different phases, so perimenopause, postmenopausal phases and how they also require that you engage in some kind of strength training. I'm also going to talk a little bit about how our thoughts, beliefs, thought processes around this notion of the menopause can impact, maybe even dictate the health outcomes that we will or possibly will not experience right through that perspective. I'm really excited to get into this. But I just want to say, this is your first time here on my podcast, welcome. Quickly, my aim here is to unpack some of the most important wellness topics like menopause and just sort through the good, the bad and the downright disordered so that you don't have to waste your time or money on things that aren't supported by empirical evidence. Now, that does not mean that we only rely on empirical evidence or on the scientific method. And the reason being is that particularly in psychology, which is where I'm currently still studying, still finishing a degree at the time of recording this, although we're close, we're close to the end of it. But essentially, some factors and variables when it comes to gathering empirical evidence are really difficult to test. They're really hard to operationalize in an experiment. Does that mean that the phenomena or the pattern or the experience isn't real? Absolutely not. So as much as I like to consider myself as an evidence-based trainer, PT, yoga teacher, and eventually soon enough, psychologist, of course I am guided by science and this empirical method, but I do stay open to the things that science isn't yet able to support, knowing that these things change over time as technology improves. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming back. Let's get started. So before we begin, I just want to jog your memory on some of the things that I've shared with you thus far about limiting beliefs, about narratives, about schemas that we've developed about things. Remember that a schema is a cognitive framework or a kind of blueprint, if you will, that helps to organize and interpret information based on our past experiences or our knowledge, our prior knowledge. So let's just take a moment and think about some of the ways in which we may think about these very common, natural, honestly quite amazing aspects of the female body. Like what words... What thoughts, what perspectives do you have about the menopause, about perimenopause? Are you scared of it? Is it something that you're dreading? Is it something that you describe as a negative? Just take a moment. And then I want you to think about just quickly, I mean, even if you have a piece of paper in front of you, you can kind of jot some of them down. Just naturally, just jot a few down right now, if you can, if it's available to you. Now what I want you to do is just look at it And think, what is the ratio of positive to negative thoughts that you have here about the menopause? Now, this isn't about judging ourselves or the perspectives we hold. It's just about acknowledging them and then recognizing if they're contributing to the evolution of a smooth transition through the natural aging process. Because we know that if we perceive something to be bad ahead of time, the likelihood 
of that thing presenting as a bad experience increases. So make a mental or even, like I said, a physical note, if you can, if it's available to you, of those words and perspectives, and we'll see if we can change them or at least change the ratio of good to bad that we may have as we go through this podcast. But first things first, we need a little roadmap for today's session. Also, before we get into the roadmap, if you haven't already and you've taken value from this podcast, have a look at your phone right now, whatever you're listening to it on, click that five star if you can. And if you're listening on Apple or Google Podcasts, I would love it if you would leave me a review. It supports the podcast a lot, obviously, and it also helps me get this information out to more and more people who may not otherwise access it in their echo chamber. Which brings me to another point. It's like, if it's available to you, if you feel throughout this podcast that this is helpful and useful, please consider sharing it. And it doesn't, like I said, obviously sharing it to your social media is very helpful because it goes out to more people, but send it to a lover, send it to a friend, send it to someone you care about who will benefit from hearing this stuff. Alrighty, let's get on with the roadmap. Overview of today, we're going to start with a little introduction on menopause and perimenopause, what it is, what are the symptoms. It's going to be very top line stuff. I'm not a menopause doctor, but obviously we need to sort of orient ourselves on the same page. Then I'm going to focus on the importance of strength training. And specifically, I want to discuss some of the misconceptions around weight gain when it comes to aging and metabolism in this section. And it's really, really important. Then I'm going to give you some top tips for getting started with weight training, particularly if you sit in that older age bracket. I say older, I'm talking to me and anyone older than me. (laughs) I'm 36 right now. But, you know, menopause, as we'll come to understand, perimenopause specifically can come and we can be presented with symptoms from, you know, the age of 30. So it's not, and as I'll also talk about, God, I'm going off track, but as I'll also talk about is that the stuff that happens to us when we're older needs to be considered at all ages, actually. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. Now, I'm also going to talk a little bit about Pilates at the end, just a tiny little bit. I'm going to go in on it. I'm going to be very balanced in my argument. Don't worry. Uh, I want to present a very evidence-based case for why I think you should be doing more than just Pilates. So for anyone that's sort of like, if you're a Pilates teacher, don't worry. This I'm not trying to talk people out of doing Pilates. I'm simply going to be presenting the case for why it's not enough. It's just categorically not enough for mitigating some of the things that I'm about to bring up today. Okay. It wouldn't be the Virtue Podcast, you know, if we didn't discuss <laughs> just the physical. So, you know, I'm going to dive in a little bit to some of the emotional and psychological based concepts that will help us to shift our perspective on this, which will in turn have implications, positive ones, on the physical and the physical manifestation of it as well. Okay. So starting with our introduction to the menopause, super simple, big overview, nothing too crazy. We just want to orient ourselves so that we're all on the same page. Menopause, the menopause is a natural biological event that signifies the end of a woman's reproductive years. And it typically occurs in the late 40s or early 50s. But there's a lot of variety there, okay, that can come up for varying reasons. Now, it is characterized by the permanent cessation or ending of menstruation. And it's officially diagnosed when someone has gone 12 consecutive months without a menstrual period. Okay, the ovaries have stopped releasing eggs and produce much, much lower levels of estrogen and progesterone. 
Now, perimenopause, which is often referred to as the menopausal transition, is the phase leading up to menopause. And this is characterized by hormonal fluctuations and a range of associated symptoms. And they're very similar, actually, as we'll go through. Now, this period can actually last for several years and it can start in our 30s, but typically starts around the 40s. We can have like a super early onset of perimenopausal symptoms. Now, postmenopause, which a lot of people don't, don't talk about, which is sad, are the years following menopause. And when I say a lot of people don't talk about it, I'm talking about people in the fitness space. It's not as sexy, and I do want to really like go in on that a little bit because it's very frustrating. It's very silly <laughs> to neglect this, not just for this cohort of people who we just decide that we're going to ignore talking about people that are in that postmenopausal phase, but it also doesn't make sense to ignore it when we're all going to be there. <laughs> and when I say we're all, obviously I'm talking about anyone who is within a female body or having this female body biological experience. I'm trying to maintain inclusivity in my in my conversation of my language, but I'm not so well versed at it trying to combine like scientific language, which is still very much like black and white, and then also trying to be inclusive. So I apologize in advance if I offend anyone in this process. Hopefully you guys know what I mean and what I'm talking about, and I'll just keep working on my language and how I express it and get better at being inclusive with it. But the postmenopausal phase really is going to impact those of us who are living in female bodies. Okay, so it is important. And I will, throughout this, the kind of motif and the ongoing message is like, you should give a shit now. Apologies for swearing, but you should care about it now. Like, I don't care how old you are. If you are in your 20s and you're listening to this podcast, this is coming for you at some point. Okay, if you're female. So the stuff that you do now in your 20s is going to set you up for the symptoms that you experience later. And I can't stress that enough. So postmenopause are the years following menopause where symptoms like hot flashes, they may start to diminish, woohoo, but, but health risks related to decreased estrogen levels start to rise. And, you know, again, I want to bring this up because a very good friend of mine, an incredible women's health doctor and specialist, Dr. Stephanie Cuckoo who I will share in the show notes, she recently said to me in a conversation, the thing you need to understand about women's health, Shona, is that everything we do today sets us up for the next phase. So even if menopause, postmenopause type things feel really, really far away to you, they matter now and they've always mattered because each phase of this female experience sets you up for the next phases and the next changes. So let's talk a little bit about symptoms and signs of menopause. So the common symptoms that we've probably all heard about are like hot flashes, night sweats, sleep disturbances, mood changes, and vaginal dryness. The mood changes one is interesting. I was actually going to talk about it in this podcast, but I took it out because there's a lot to unpack. But some of the old classical methods for understanding mood and emotion are actually scientifically a little bit flawed. There is an incredible, an incredible uh, researcher, author, writer, doctor. Her name is Lisa Feldman Barrett, and she's written a book called How Emotions Are Made and proposes like a new theory and obviously all the evidence to support it. And I do want to bring that up. But sometimes, you know, we've been led to believe that our hormones are dictating 
our emotions. And what she talks about in this book is that that's not quite the case. It's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as like you have less of this, more of this, that equals sadness or that equals depression. Different people based on, and it just comes back to schemas. It comes back to cultural context. It comes back very much to this biopsychosocial perspective is that all of those things are impacting whether we will or we will not have an experience that is quote unquote good or quote unquote bad. So it's much more complex than that. So the reason I want to bring that up very quickly, I know it's a little bit of a a side, it's a little bit of a trail off there, but it's because when I say that that is one of the symptoms of menopause and perimenopause. I'm going to do another episode on emotions and the stuff that Lisa talks about because I think that we've been led to think that we are just going to be at the mercy of the hormonal emotions that present themselves. And that just doesn't have to be the case. So I'm really all about empowering people with knowledge that you can decide. You can decide to a degree. Yeah, obviously we're always at the mercy, a little bit of our biology, but it doesn't always have to be that way and it doesn't have to be to such significant levels. Okay, (laughs) where where did I finish? Vaginal dryness was where we, we stopped. Now, there's cognitive symptoms as well. Some women can report memory lapses or difficulty focusing and then physical changes. So osteoporosis risk increases due to reduced bone density. Now we know that skin becomes a little bit less elastic and there can be changes in metabolism and weight distribution. And this is an area that I'm definitely going to unpack a little because it's important for us, again, to understand that it's not as simple as just like metabolism equals weight gain. And that's a good thing way more empowering. Okay. Now signs and symptoms of perimenopause, very similar, right? Now in this case, the difference is we get menstrual irregularity and this can be the earliest sign. Periods become longer, shorter, lighter, or heavier. Obviously that doesn't happen in the menopause because menopause is categorized by the ending of your period. So if there's menstrual irregularity, that can be an early sign. But obviously it's really hard to say this because there's so many things in our lives as we grow older or not even then, even when we're in our quote unquote youth, whatever we decide that is, we can experience irregularity for a numbering of reasons, right? So this is just one and it's usually the earliest sign. Hot flashes and night sweats. Okay, so sudden feelings of heat that lead to sweat. We've got sleep disturbances, so difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or experiencing early awakenings. Again, mood changes, vaginal dryness, discomfort during sex, and incontinence, so different kinds of urinary symptoms. I mean, look, it's a bit frustrating to kind of give you those because it's like, yeah, I mean, there's so many things that also associate with those sorts of symptoms. So I don't want you all freaking out being like, oh my God, well, I'm only 28 and I'm experiencing all of those sorts of things. You know, they can come from a number of things, but these are the ones that are sort of common, that are important to acknowledge and just be equipped with and understanding and awareness of because they just don't get talked about enough. Okay, causes. Alrighty, so cause of the menopause. The primary cause is a natural decline in reproductive hormones. Now, as women, or if you no longer identify with being a woman, but you're still experiencing a monthly bleed, you have to take a moment to think about how we look at and label something so normal, so categorically normal, menopause, okay? Or even bleeding, or even anything to do with the very female-based experience, biologically female-based experience. It's a natural 
occurrence? What in us makes us want to resist the change here? Right. I recently had a pretty incredible conversation with one of my besties about menopause and she, we're roughly the same age. I think she's a couple of years older than me. And we were talking about, and she was telling me that she was having this conversation with one of her older female friends, I think, maybe it was her mum. I don't know. She didn't specify, but she was telling me (laughs) that the impression she was getting from the older women around her who had been through the menopause. And I have had this conversation interestingly with my mom as well, is that it's actually quite fun to be able to tap out of the whole woman system, (laughs) right? Liberated from a system that can at times be all-consuming. And I think, you know, women, I know you know what I'm talking about, right? Like the identity we hold around fertility, around am I sexy enough? Am I appealing enough to men or to women even? You know, am I relevant? Am I in my youthful, flourishing phase or not? You know, you just get to tap out of that debate. Not to say that you're not in an important phase or that you've suddenly become irrelevant, but that you don't have to be subscribing to some of the things that come with being within the reproductive age or the reproductive phases. You get to just go, ah, now I can contribute to society in a completely different way. And I had never, ever heard that perspective before. And I think it's brilliant and we need more of that. But we don't hear that. We just hear about the bad parts. We hear about people saying like, it sucks and this happens and this happens and this happens. I mean, no wonder we're moving into a space where we try to resist aging or we try to resist that it's even happening. What would happen if we suddenly had this like giant collective decision (laughs) where we decided, no, I'm not going to perpetuate this narrative anymore. Menopause is a friggin' awesome journey. Yes, it's got some downsides. Okay, you know what? I'm not even going to say they're downsides. I'm going to say that they are physical changes. What if we just accepted them and said, these are physical changes. I'm going into a new phase and this is going to be the outcome. But it's also going to have so many upsides to it. It's going to liberate me and I can just be who I want to be. I mean, I'm actually like after having that conversation, I was like, I am excited. There is a new phase coming for me and it is coming and I can explore my body in this, my my new challenges that will come up around like, okay, how do I stay healthy in this physical environment, in this new body that I may have or this slightly different body that I may have? How can I continue to create a stimulus that keeps my body thriving, flourishing? Like how amazing. Anyway, so more of that. Okay. Now, there's other factors that can actually cause that menopause experience, hysterectomy, not always, but in some cases, chemotherapy or radiation, again, not always, but sometimes. And there's another thing called primary ovarian insufficiency. And that's a condition where a woman's ovaries cease to function properly before the age of 40. This results in usually like a reduced ovarian hormonal production. And that can lead to irregular menstrual periods or the complete cessation of periods, making it harder for affected women to become pregnant. Now, the causes of this primary uh, ovarian insufficiency is often unknown, but there's like genetic factors, there's autoimmune disease factors, viral infections, exposure to toxins, right, such as chemotherapy and radiation therapy. This is not the same as an eating disorder-based amenorrhea where you lose your period from losing too much weight. That's not the same thing. That one is reversible depending on the age, through 
various different interventions like lifestyle and obviously increasing intake and things like that. Those sorts of interventions can actually reverse those effects. This is a bit different to that. So I just wanted to bring it to the table because I think it's important for us. These conversations always get kind of muted a little bit. I know that when I was growing up, I didn't know about any of this stuff at all. And that's really sad. So as I mentioned, I think we've kind of covered the the massive overview of menopause and perimenopause. Obviously, like there are specialists that you can listen to, and I've linked them in the show notes, who talk about this, who who have really decided that they're going to focus and hone in on this stuff. And I do encourage you to follow them, even if you're very far away from experiencing menopause, because the more equipped you are, the more this will contribute, this knowledge will contribute to the changes that you make in your present lifestyle. And so with that, as I mentioned earlier, this podcast is going to focus on the implications of fitness and strength training on this menopausal, perimenopausal and postmenopausal period or phase. Now, I do want to unpack a bit of a misnomer or a myth when it comes to weight gain. And then, like I said earlier, I'm going to finish on some tips to getting started and why Pilates just isn't enough. It sounds like I'm finishing the podcast here. I'm not. I'm just going to kind of introduce a bit of a music interlude. I'm sure you guys need a break to just kind of like process that, right? I need to stretch my legs. I actually need to pee as well. (laughs) So I'm going to go pee. (laughs) I'll make sure that you guys can't hear that. (laughs) We're going to have the music running. And I'm going to give my hips some, some love. And if you guys have been sitting down listening to this, if you have an opportunity, like take a movement break. I really encourage you to like, you know, step, move your hips, do whatever you can do. Like, is this a good opportunity for you to like go into a quick like internal rotation stretch for your hips? Is this a good opportunity for you to stretch your neck and shoulders, to arch your back a little bit? Like how long have you been sitting in one position if you're driving? Obviously, that's a little bit trickier. But if you're on a long road trip, and this is one of your podcasts, like, is it time for a movement break? Like, can you pull over, stop, move your body a little bit? Remember that sedentary stuff is really unhealthy (laughs) for the body. We know that it has a lot of implications, but also, you know, what they found is that there might be some benefit to introducing, you know, movement snacks throughout the day instead of just saying, oh, you know, try to do whatever whatever the recommendation is, I think it's 150 minutes of exercise a week, medium intensity exercise a week. It's like many of us think about exercise as like this one hour of something that we might do three to four times a week. But I'd love you to also consider this implementation of like constant movement because the body was just not designed to be sort of static, particularly not in chairs or stuck. So I'm going to put some music on and (laughs) I'm going to chill and I'm going to pee and you guys are going to move or do whatever you can. And we'll be back in just a second looking at the relationship with menopause and weight gain. we are back and we're going to start with weight gain misconceptions because they tie into the strength training and fitness stuff that I'm going to talk about in a sec. But have you ever heard or have you ever said maybe, oh, I'm getting older, you know, my metabolism is slowing down. Or have you heard your friends say that, you know, or anyone saying like, oh, I'm a bit worried, you know, oh, well, as you get older, you know, what can you do? Your metabolism slows down. So we need to we need to talk about this. The relationship between menopause and weight gain or even aging and weight gain or aging and the metabolism is not as simple as aging causes a reduction in metabolism or an increase in weight gain, right? If it was a factor of aging causing weight gain, well then we'd all be gaining weight, and that's just not the case. So it's much more complicated and multifaceted than that, which is great actually, okay, because we're not at the mercy of aging or menopause even. And I think that's a really disenfranchised 
victim mentality way to look at things and that I'm not coming after people. I understand why people have that perspective because we're sold that perspective. The good thing is we have choices. They do start in our younger years. Doesn't mean that you can't change them in your older years, but that's why, again, I keep reiterating, you really need to be listening and considering this stuff now because the habits you set now make it a lot easier when things change as you age. But again, it's not enough to just say aging causes this. So metabolism can slow down and does slow down, but for a number of reasons. Sometimes they are, (laughs) the word that came to mind was intervenable. (laughs) That's not a word, (laughs) but I think you know what I mean, where I'm going with this. So let's look at loss of muscle mass. So one of the primary reasons that our metabolism tends to slow down with age is this natural loss of muscle mass. And it's a process called sarcopenia. Now, sarcopenia is completely, not completely, not in every case, but for the most part is sort of preventable. But let's talk about why a reduction in muscle tissue can lead to that reduction in in metabolism. So muscle tissue burns more calories at rest than fat tissue. So as muscle mass decreases and fat mass increases, even if you're not kind of visually looking fatter, right? As you're having this body composition shift. So muscle mass tissue decreasing, fat mass increasing, or fat tissue increasing, the basal metabolic rate, right? This is the number of calories that you're burning at rest. If you were just kind of like lying down doing nothing, muscle kind of chews up more to keep alive versus fat tissue. But basal metabolic rate is like everything that you need in calories just to keep you alive. And if you start to lose muscle, this BMR decreases. And this decrease in BMR means that even if your activity level remains the same, you may start to gain weight unless you adjust your caloric intake. And this sometimes naturally happens, actually, with some people. Some people in that postmenopausal phase will naturally like just start to eat less. I'm always struggling to get my mum to eat more because I'm like, no, we need to like maintain. <laughs> we need to maintain muscle mass in her. And so I'm really trying to push for her to eat enough food. So another thing that can start to decline, right, is physical activity. As we age, we often become less physically active and there can be a number of reasons, right? And this can include like health issues, energy levels, lifestyle changes, psychological changes, habits that we set in our youth that like kind of continue through older age. That reduced physical activity leads to fewer calories burned. This can contribute to that weight gain. This can contribute to that decrease in metabolic rate, but it is preventable, right? You can maintain your physical activity. You can weight train to preserve your muscle mass. You can eat enough protein to preserve your muscle mass. And these things will not mean or will mean that you won't necessarily have that reduction in metabolic rate. Now, if we look at hormonal changes, everyone loves to talk about how as they get older, their metabolism has slowed down because of the hormonal changes. Now, this isn't untrue, right? This isn't untrue, right? Levels of hormones like testosterone, growth hormone, thyroid hormones can decline with age, and this can affect metabolic rate. But Obviously, there are medical interventions we can have, and I'm not going to talk about those, but there are doctors who I will mention in the show notes who are trying to remove the stigma for things like HRT, which can be really beneficial for women, actually, even though I know it's a controversial concept and topic. 
but I would definitely consider following those people and listening to those people so that you can get a much better, broader, more critical view of the evidence for and against those things. But also, guess what else supports this stuff? Weight training, trying to preserve your muscle mass from now until that postmenopausal phase is only going to benefit those hormonal levels. There's also neurological and mitochondrial factors. So some research suggests that age-related changes in the nervous system and efficiency of the mitochondria, so energy-producing components of the cells, can impact metabolic rate. Okay, so there are some of those things. Again, there are lifestyle interventions that we can choose that can help with these sorts of things. Dietary choices. So this is tricky because there's so many variances here, but obviously as people age, you know, you might experience changes in your appetite, your taste, and your digestive efficiency. And this can lead to consuming fewer calories or making less optimal food choices that again leads to that decrease in muscle mass or that change in body composition, which we know has a cascading effect, right, on our metabolism. But another thing that can happen is like, if we look at digestive efficiency, walking has a positive impact on your digestion because it massages your ascending and descending colon as you walk, right? It has this, it supports, it's designed to support being able to get into a deep squat, being able to sit on the ground, compressing those lower abdominal organs can help with digestion. This is insanely important because it's going to make a difference on obviously everything metabolism related, everything weight gain related, okay? Now, other health conditions obviously come into play, right? We've got like hypothyroidism and those specific things can actually impact us at any age. So again, you know, just labeling it as age only and that aging is bad is like, I think it's a cop out. It's like, no, it doesn't have to be that bad. So we just need to think about how we're, how we're perceiving it right now. And this is really where the psychological and I'm dare I say it, the social, you know, what is everyone around you saying about aging? What are the magazines saying? What are the people around you? What narrative are they pushing? And if it is a negative one, you have to make the choice to go, I'm not going to subscribe to that story. And in actual fact, I'm going to acknowledge that there are some incredible benefits to aging, (laughs) wisdom being one of them. But also, I'm not going to be a victim of it. And I'm going to do what I can to continue to live my life and see aging as presenting challenges, yes, but presenting challenges that I know that deep inside of me, this is sort of like self-actualization that's going on, right? That we can say, like, I have the power to, like, handle anything, right? It's about resilience. Anyway, sorry. I know I keep going on a rant about that, but it's just like really irritating me at the moment to hear how many negative perspectives we have about the female experience. And I'm like, can we stop writing these stories? Can we stop constantly going on about this? Like, yes, there are some negative elements, but it, it, how helpful is it? I think it's helpful to honor them and honor the difficulties, but not to kind of constantly dwell on them. Now, also hormonal shifts like decreased estrogen can affect the way that fat is distributed in the body, and that can lead to a likelihood of accumulating abdominal fat, but more specifically like visceral fat. Okay, so that's the the fat that sits between the organs. That's not necessarily subcutaneous fat, which is uh, the fat you see online, (laughs) online. Okay, the fat that's constantly being talked about. Okay. So that brings me to the point of strength training during menopause. 
So here's how strength training can help. And I know you've heard me say this many times before, but I'm going to say it again. Bone density. So we know that with that decline in estrogen that occurs, that natural decline that occurs, well, that can start to increase the risk of osteoporosis. But if you're strength training, you can help to support that. And I will do another podcast on osteoporosis, sarcopenia, and dynopenia. The the dark triad, I'm going to call it if that's wrong. <laughs> no, I'm not going to call it the dark triad. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk about this in a future episode. But basically, osteoporosis, that eating away at your bone. Strength training can help to improve and increase that bone mineral density. Muscle mass right? Strength training is going to help to preserve that muscle mass or build it. And it counteracts the age-related muscle loss that personally, I don't think is always just age-related. It's activity-related. It is value-based related muscle loss. Okay. And that's why I'm really speaking to those of you in your 30s, those of you in your 20s who are like, I don't care, it's so far away. And it's like, it's not that far away, one. And two, the stuff you do now is going to help you establish the habits that will support you to not have to experience or not have to play catch up later. Now we've got metabolism. And so strength training, if we increase that muscle mass, we know that it's going to support our metabolism and that weight management. Another thing that's often not talked about enough is like mood and mental health, right? There is a huge benefit that comes from feeling strong. And I don't know anything. I come from a dance background. I come from a gymnastics background, okay? I love Pilates. I love yoga for other reasons, but they do not provide me with the same feeling that I get from lifting weights, And I would never expect them to. Lifting weights can give you this incredibly, this incredible feeling of high self-efficacy that I just don't think I've ever seen matched by any other sport. And I've done plenty of sports. I've done martial arts. I mean, as soon as I give birth, I want to get back to martial arts. I want to get back to some of those things, which definitely make me feel strong and capable in their own way. But I love weight training for how it makes me feel and how it impacts my mood and mental health. And then, of course, the more physical strength we have, the more we reduce the risk of injuries, we can also help to improve our balance and stability. And this is something I think, again, could probably have its own podcast. I think the World Health Organization don't quote me exactly. (laughs) I would pause this, but we're going to keep going. But basically, I think that the second leading cause of, uh, is it, it's not, it's death from accidental injury is like a fall. And this often has a higher prevalence rate for women. And the reason that it can lead to death is because if you have like a hip break that can often happen through a fall, particularly if you are already struggling with something like osteoporosis or that lower reduced bone mineral density, then that fall can be so detrimental. It can have you bedridden. And then there's all these other reasons that can come into play for why that eventually leads to death. You know, it's it's like, we're not messing about here. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we need to give <laughs> give a shit about this stuff and we need to care about it right now. So let me talk about, before we get on with the tips for getting started, which I will leave you with, I just want to talk a little bit about Pilates. And the reason I want to do that is because I get an influx of people and an influx of messaging. Maybe it's my echo chamber, but I do see a lot of people really being like, I do Pilates because I don't want to get bulky or I do Pilates because I like that, you know, it's good for my flexibility and 
you know, it's like nice and comfortable. It's in a room full of potentially a bunch of other women or the whole environment is just much more comfortable and welcoming and open. And it's, you've got someone there with you that's guiding you through it. So I understand the temptation, but let me tell you right now that it is not the same. It's not giving you the same benefits as weight training. And so if I can encourage you and convince you to move past that discomfort of stepping into a weights room, of being around a bunch of grunting men, which I know is really uncomfortable, then if we can get over that hurdle, which I know is not an easy hurdle to get over, but if we can get over it, we're going to get the benefits. And I'm not saying quit Pilates. I'm just saying that Pilates is not going to yield the same effects. And I have tagged an open access paper for you in the show notes, but let me just go through something quickly here because something that commonly happens in our industry in the fitness industry or my industry, let's just say, is that often people will try and look for a study that supports, you know, their their cognitive bias, or maybe they look for something they're not trying to get, they don't have a cognitive bias here, or they might have a little one, but they're like, okay, cool, I'm going to look at some of the studies out there. And sometimes what they'll do, and this may be you too, you look and you just read the abstract. And the abstract is kind of a summary of the study. It'll give you a little bit of the uh, introduction. It'll give you a little bit of the methods what they were trying to do, find, and what they concluded from the study, essentially. And the problem is, is that it doesn't give you enough. So this open access paper that I've shared, if you were to just click on it now and not actually read the entire paper and just read the abstract, this is kind of the impression you might take from it. So researchers were looking at different databases to compare how effective Pilates was against other exercises in increasing muscle strength, balance, and flexibility right? So three variables there, muscle strength, balance, and flexibility. Now they checked over 1900 studies, but they only used 11 of them, okay, for a detailed analysis. Important to remember. Now on a scale used to judge the quality of these studies, they scored an average of six out of 10. Okay, doesn't sound so bad. That doesn't mean much to anyone who isn't researching, right? Okay, the results, what says there wasn't a clear winner between Pilates and other exercise when it came to improving muscle strength, balance, or flexibility. So Based on the studies they looked at, Pilates seems to be just as effective as any other exercise for these fitness goals. Now, (laughs) if you then go through the actual study and you research it and you read through some of these things, you read through the discussion, you're probably going to come to a different conclusion. So the abstract is kind of luring you to believe something that it's not that it's wrong. It's definitely not wrong. But really how I would frame it is, yep, we know that studies were done to see if Pilates were better than exercise for muscle strength, balance, and flexibility. But the evidence for these studies are just not very strong. And some of the reasons why is because the studies weren't done very well, right? Out of 1,900 studies, they only chose 11. And of that 11, well, they had a small number of participants averaging around 43 people. The ways that they tested or implemented exercise varied a lot between the studies, and that makes it very hard to compare right? If there's no consistent methodology or framework for how we're comparing Pilates to different training types, it's really hard to draw conclusions. Now, when they looked at the results, only muscle strength was notably different with other exercises showing better results than Pilates. Sorry, hang on a second. That's pretty important, (laughs) right? Now for balance and flexibility, there wasn't a clear winner. So In short, actually what you'd say is there isn't evidence strong enough to say that Pilates is better or worse than other exercises for flexibility and balance. Okay, there's no clear winner. 
there is a clear winner, <laughs> potentially, at least in this study, which is still saying that the quality isn't that great. But there was still, even in a low quality sort of study that we that's hard to draw conclusions from, there, there still was a demonstration of, an, of a difference between Pilates and other exercise types in gaining muscle strength. From an anecdotal perspective, and I say anecdotal because it is anecdotal, and I say it because I want you to know that obviously this is just my experience with Pilates. However, my experience does span nearly two decades. Pilates isn't enough, and it's not enough because of some of the things that I've explained before over on my Instagram. Make sure you're following if you're not already, but I've explained some of the concepts around muscle hypertrophy, so growing muscle, gaining strength. So there are different mechanisms involved, but the underlying principle is that the stimulus needs to be great enough okay, for the body to decide to add muscle or to increase strength. Now, if the stimulus in this case Pilates, isn't strong enough because for whatever reason, programming, exercise type, you know, resistance, intensity isn't strong enough. And that's not me saying you should go out and try and do some kind of like hot Pilates or something because that's not what I'm talking about here. Then your body is just not going to use valuable resources, calories, right, to build muscle. Your body is constantly trying to make you better at whatever it is that you are consistently doing. And so so if the stimulus isn't great enough, and in this case, thus far, both my experience anecdotally of Pilates, and I've done lots of different types from traditional to, you know, <laughs> mainstream types, the stimulus is not going to be great enough. Now, obviously, that depends on where you're starting from. So eventually, I'd love you to start to get into weight training. If you're not doing any exercise, Pilates may be the best way for you to start to feel more comfortable with exercise, with movement, balance, flexibility, those sorts of things. I just don't want it to be the thing that you're like, yeah, I do Pilates, it's enough. It's not enough. Okay. And that's my case. And I'm happy for people to debate with me on this one. But I think for the most part, we should all be leaning towards doing both because Pilates has incredible benefits for body awareness. And as this has shown, and as I've seen in other studies, there has been a clear benefit for balance, flexibility, and sometimes some isometric strength as well. Anyway, let's move on. Top tips. I don't want to keep you guys for too long and I already have, but hopefully, hopefully you've taken some things away from it. So my top tips, I've got five for you. Number one, if you can afford it, look at getting a personal trainer. Now, it might be an annoying one to say because, okay, let's say finances aside, how do you decide if they're good, right? There's so many of them. And maybe we need to do an episode on this, a whole episode in and of itself. But here's what I want to say. Qualifications aren't everything. Likewise, how many Instagram followers also isn't everything. And you may be thinking in your mind, of course, I know this. But the reality is when we're looking online, sometimes we can be swayed by how many followers someone has. And we have this cognitive bias that starts to creep up. And we make these assumptions that they must know what they're talking about. The body they have doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to help you. So there's all these factors that come into play that we may not acknowledge or know. And yeah, we may not acknowledge that they're sort of having an impact on the way that we're choosing, but it's definitely something worth considering, right? Um, you know, whether they have a bunch of before and after pics, also, sorry, but it's again, not enough to know whether they're going to be the right coach for you. Some of the things that I would encourage you to consider are what is their health philosophy, right? Have you spoken to them about it? If they are on Instagram, 
message them and say, what's, what would you say is your health? You know, I really, I'm really interested in training with you. I just would love to know more about it. And they might say, well, follow me for a while and you'll figure it out. <laughs> or they might say, go check out my website and it might be written on there. But understanding what their health philosophy is will help give you some insight. Now, are they guided by both experience and research? This is important. Research isn't everything as well, as we've seen. There's a lot of misconceptions and confusions around being an evidence-based trainer. So research isn't everything. It also obviously plays a part and we want our trainers to be evidence-based. But how much experience do they have? Okay, because experience often goes underappreciated in the evidence-based space. And it's unfortunate because it can contribute to a lot more than what can be seen in the research. And then last but not least, ask, you know, what are their values? Now you can either ask them or you can start to look and observe and try to make those inferences yourself and then clarify them with further questions. But understanding what their values are is going to make a difference as to whether you're going to align with them as a coach. Now, also, the second tip I would say is even if you can't afford to have multiple training sessions with a personal trainer, I totally understand that financially that's just like completely ridiculous. Maybe it's even ridiculous from a time perspective too. Even one or two sessions with a trainer to help you understand how to execute the movements, the key movements, squat, deadlift patterns, a push pattern, a pull pattern, you know, vertical, horizontal, those sorts of things, understanding some of those things and some of the key machines that you might be wanting to use with a program are going to make a huge difference. So I would definitely encourage that. If you can just say to the trainer, hey, I can only afford two sessions with you. Can we do this? I'm sure that they will be like, yep, okay, I'm going to help you with this. But you have to be vocal and you have to be okay with, you know, owning up to the fact and there's no taboo in not being able to afford it. There's just no, we just need to throw that in the garbage bin right now. Who cares? If you can't afford training for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. Just be honest and upfront about what you want instead. My third tip is classes for confidence, but ultimately it's important to start something personalized and periodized. So I think that classes can be a really great way to get more comfortable in the gym, in the gym surroundings and to develop friends and a community, maybe even get to know some trainers that are teaching those classes who you can then speak to later about doing private sessions with them if you like and connect with them. Classes are okay, but just don't over rely on them because, you know, as a trainer myself, I've walked class plenty of classes and oh, I've wanted to run in and like correct the, correct the form, correct the execution. You know, when someone's training, you know, a room full of like 45 people, there's no way that they can get to them. And yet if I see them at the back of the room, I can see that their execution is dangerous. It's not the fault of the person teaching the class. There is a level of responsibility that you have to, to kind of adhere to. Now, finally, <laughs> finally, my tip, no, I've got two more tips, home programs. I have a follow along home program. I'm going to shout it out here because it is one of the things that can help people to feel more confident. So training at home can lean you into being able to feel more comfortable to go into training in a gym because you understand and learn some of those movements. It's a follow along program. So you will follow along with me every step of the way and you will learn how to execute those things. You can check that out. I'll link them below. And then finally, group PT, join a community. This is something I am hugely, hugely passionate about, a community that can help you and encourage you to engage with more strength training. I hope that you've enjoyed today. I know I've kept you for a long time. I absolutely love talking about this stuff. So as you can tell, I'm quite passionate and I will see you guys very 
very soon. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, yeah, see ya. Thank you.